Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Okay, Gospel of Mark. This is the Word of God. And when he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, he loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, sorry, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. As many of you know, uh, and I've, I'm very fond of saying this, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I know, I know. But this is a photo of my building. So this is actually the place where I grew up. This is my building. This is where um, uh, my mom was six months pregnant with me. Uh, I had four older sisters, and we moved into this building. And that is my window right there. This is 233 Jamaica Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, 11207. And that, though, these things here that you can see, these are fire escapes, okay? Uh, and this was my backyard. You laugh kind of like a sad laugh because it's true though that's where I went to hang out like that was my backyard and so obviously there was no mowing to do there was no lawn work to do and so for years uh, up until I moved here actually uh, I lived in that apartment apartment 6f uh, until I moved here and then I moved into another apartment where there was no lawn and then I moved into another apartment for another eight years in Bankstown where there was no lawn and so I have not one green thumb in my body and if you come over and you see my backyard this is undeniable proof that I don't know what the hell I'm doing when it comes to a lawnmower or, or I think it's called a whipper snipper. Is that, is that like the actual name or is that like a, that's the actual, that's not like the code name, that's not like the Aussie name for it. Like a, I don't know what I'm doing 
when it comes to that. And so you find me often, uh, you find Catherine often reminding me, can you go do the lawn? Can you go, can you please go do the lawn? And I leave it off, and I leave it off for another week, and I leave it off for, like, I'm not talking days here. I'm talking weeks where it becomes like a South American jungle back there where I can't find the dog anymore, the kids get lost. Like, I don't know what I'm doing back there. And what I, what I find myself, like, I, I, I ask myself, why do I hate doing this so much? And um, besides the fact that I don't know what I'm doing, it's just because it costs me. It costs me energy. It costs me my reading time, you know. Uh, it costs me, like, me watching a movie or just relaxing. I don't want to be out there doing yard work. But what I found out, when, what I can continue to find out, is that it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me to do that, to take the time out to do that. But it's going to cost me far more to not do it. The work that it compounds, it, it compounds. It's not just a little bit worse. It's a lot worse to do it. And I think this is what we're going to see in our story. There is a cost to me not doing my lawns, right? Uh, th- rather, there's a cost to me doing them. There's a greater cost in me not doing them. And in this story, what we'll see is that the cost to following Jesus is steep. It is really, really steep. The call to discipleship is not one that we should take lightly. But the cost to not following Jesus is steeper still. Leaving that off and going our own wayward way is going to end up costing us so much more than counting the cost and following Jesus. And so Jesus, at this point in our story, uh, he's in the region of Judea. Uh, and this was his custom, that what he would do when he would go into a region, he would teach the crowds that were gathered to him. And what often happens is he's, he'll have a bit of a tussle with the religious authority. So in this case, in uh, the earlier parts of, tra- of chapter 10, he's arguing with the Pharisees about divorce. And then he is arguing with his disciples that he shouldn't let, uh, they shouldn't deny children from coming to him. And as he's now going out, you can imagine he's maybe a bit tired now. He was traveling. He was arguing with the Pharisees. He's about to head out. And then this man comes to him, kneeling, in a sense, kind of begging for his attention. And we're going to focus throughout this story on four ideas or words. One is this. The first one is love. If you're taking notes, love, invite, resist, and remember. Love, invite, resist, and remember. Let's jump in. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we understand this man to be rich because later on in the text it will say that he had many possessions. And in in this story, it just simply says he's a man. But Matthew's version tells us, that he was young, while Luke's version tells us that he was a ruler. And so maybe in your Bibles, you'll see the subheading saying the young, rich ruler. And he comes to him in a bit of desperation, I think, if we want to read him charitably. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, uh, Jesus seems not to be very orthodox here. I mean, if I were Jesus, I would say, uh, believe in me. That's how you're going to be saved. Repent and believe in the gospel. Have faith in God. Be born again. Remember, a couple weeks ago, what did he tell Nicodemus when Nicodemus came with the same question? You must be born from above. You must be born again. But Jesus is difficult. And he does a very Jesus-y thing here because 
he doesn't just listen to your words. He doesn't just listen to this man's words, but he is reading between the lines. He sees the subtext of what is happening here. And so he sees this rich, young ruler come to him, asking him how he can inherit eternal life, calling him good teacher. And Jesus is paying attention not just to his words, but to the story behind his words. He's going to respond to him in a very, very, very unorthodox, strange way. He says this in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, he responds to him, why do you call me good? Now, now some people, what they do with this text, and you may have read it, you may have heard someone say this, is that, look, this is proof. Proof that Jesus is saying he is not God. But that is not what Jesus is doing here. That is not the point. Jesus is getting past or trying to get past this young man's preconceived notions of what good is. You don't know me. I mean, you've heard about me. You've seen stories. Why are you calling me good? What is your conception of what is good? Jesus wants to hit refresh on this young man's definition of what is good. And Jesus is going to put this to the test. He puts it to the test by holding up what many, what our Christian history calls uh, the mirrors to our souls, the Ten Commandments. And he holds up, and, and the way that the Ten Commandments are, uh, um, uh, the way they're organized is that the first part of the Ten Commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with Yahweh, with God. While the second part of the Ten Commandments have to do with our horizontal relationships. How do we treat one another? And Jesus begins to list the second table, the horizontal table, the table that actually is going to dictate and it's going to tell us how to treat one another. He begins to list the second table of the Ten Commandments. And he says it here very clearly from verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, which is what? The sixth commandment. Do not murder. He tells him, do not commit adultery, which is the seventh commandment. He tells him, do not steal, which is the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness. Do not lie about your brother or sister, which is the ninth commandment. And then this one's a bit uh, tricky, where he says, do not defraud, where the tenth commandment is to not to covet. Not to covet. And here, what Jesus may be doing is he's looking at what happens when we do covet. When we covet someone's things or person or items or possessions, we will defraud them, deceive them to get it. And then he jumps back to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And the question Jesus wants to ask this rich young ruler is this. You call me good, but you don't really know me. What do you think good is? And he responds here in verse 20. And he learns real quick. Listen to this. He says, teacher, right? Like he just, he just got schooled by Jesus. Like, why do you call me good? All right, well, I won't call you good. Teacher. So at least he's a quick learner. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, that's, that's a wild assertion. To, to say the least, right? That every, every single one of these commandments, like, I have respected mom and dad. I have never lied. 
I have never stolen from my youth since I've been responsible for my own formation, since I have been responsible before God, since my youth, I have not done any of these. And what's interesting, Jesus doesn't even challenge him. He's like, I bet you've, you feel you've done this. Let's say you have. Let's say you have fulfilled the second table of the law, which is phenomenal. Let's put the first one to the test. The ones that have to deal with your relationship and devotion to Yahweh. What's the first commandment? Who is primary in your heart? Fine, you want to say that you've kept all of these commandments from your youth. And he says this in 21. And Jesus, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him and said to him. And, and for me, I mean, this, this story is packed. We, we maybe have read the story so many times, but I just want to stop for a moment and just, just rest here for a second. Jesus looked at him. He looked at him. Now, this, it wasn't that he wasn't looking at him before, right? You've been to a party. You've been to a conference where you're speaking to someone, right? You're speaking to someone, and they're kind of like, they're over here. They're looking to see if there's someone else in the room who's a little more important than you, right? Who's a little higher on the uh, echelon of, of sociality in that room, right? You, they're kind of looking, and then they kind of look back at you. That, that's not what's happening. Jesus has been looking at him, but I, I feel that Mark is wanting us to see something here. That Jesus notices him. He looks at him. There's something so deep within us we want to be looked at. We want to be seen. We want to be noticed. This is one of the most fundamental needs of humanity is to be seen, to be looked at, to be noticed. And Jesus sees him. Not just sees him, but he, he sees him. And not only that, but he, he loves him. It's not only that he looks at him, but he loves him. And in our mind, if, if we were Jesus, if, if we were Mark, if we were writing this, what would we want Jesus to say based on the reality that we're saying Jesus loved him? To us, I feel a lot of the time to, to love someone, has it's, it's more about sentimentality than telling them the truth in love. It's about just taking away someone's uncomfortable feelings. And really what we are doing when we don't love people, when we don't tell them the truth in love, what we are doing, we're not helping them. We are trying to sort of remove our own uncomfortability in the situation. He looked at him. He loved him. And he said to him, he gives this man the respect and dignity he deserves as an image bearer of God. He will not water down the truth, not because he's tough, but because he's tender, because he loves him. He loves him. And so I wonder, what, so to love someone, what would you tell them? What, what would I tell them? What would you tell them? This is what Jesus says. Verse 21, he looked at him, he loved him, and he said this, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Five things. He tells him to go. He tells him to sell everything, give it to the poor, to come back and to follow him. And this is the million-dollar question for us as we read this text. Is this a universal command? 
When Jesus is saying this, when Mark is writing this, when the Holy Spirit inspired this, we ask the question, is this a universal command to every disciple of Jesus everywhere for all time? And I want to say two things at least about this, that it is still a very valid calling for many people. And maybe some of us. Born Giovanni di de Bernadon in, in 1181, there was this man who was born into an extremely wealthy family, very proud. He was a soldier. And on his way to battle, he uh, encountered some sickness. He encountered some of the poor, and he started reading the Gospel of Mark. And he comes to this point through varying circumstances, and it revolutionized his life. This is St. Francis of Assisi. And he took this call. He literally sold all that he had, gave it to the poor, and he changed the landscape of the church of the time and of the culture. He took this call upon his life seriously. This call is still very true for some of us. And you hear that. You hear maybe in this room, you hear that this is not a universal call for every disciple everywhere for all times. And we just, we wipe our brow and say, whew, I get to keep what I got. And that's not the posture or the spirit that we should take with this text. Even while it is a valid calling for many people, it is not a universal command. Although that doesn't let us off the hook. I, what I want us to do is to posture ourselves before this text and ask the Holy Spirit who is living and active, is this what you're calling me to do today? And we know it's not a universal command because of the witness of Scripture. Peter, Jesus' first called disciple, he owns a home. We have Joseph of Arimathea. If you remember from the gospel text, he was the one in whose tomb Jesus was buried. He was a very wealthy man. You have Nicodemus, who was a man of means, and Lydia, who was, uh, she was a seller. She owned, she owned her own business, and she was quite wealthy. This is the point, that even while this is not a universal command, this is still a valid command. And we need to do work with the Holy Spirit to see if he is calling us to that. Even in the uh, early days of the New Testament, selling your property and giving it to the apostles, that was a voluntary act. This is the point. Do you hear the Holy Spirit pressing this on you? Do you have a heart particularly for the poor and the marginalized? God's heart for these people. And I want us to take his invitations seriously. See, Jesus reminds the rich man, that to divest himself of his, early, uh, of his earthly possessions, to give it to the poor. And by all means, this is going to make the rich man poor, right? But in the kingdom of God, things are rarely what they seem to be. Jesus reminds him, go, sell, give to the poor, come, follow me to have riches stored up in heaven. I want to clarify real quick what Jesus means here when he says that you will have riches in heaven. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that when you do this, when you divest yourself of possessions and give to the poor, that when you die and you go to heaven, there you will be rich. That is not what he is saying here. In the Jewish worldview, the biblical worldview, to inherit eternal life, remember, it's not what? It's not to die and go to heaven when you die. It is to inherit eternal life, to see the kingdom of God, in the age to come. You see, the way that Jews split time were in two ways. 
this present evil age is what they called it, and the age to come, and both of them were earthly realities. There's no conception here about this otherworldly reality. Both ages take place here on the physical earth. And so in this worldview of the ancient Jew, to inherit eternal life, to see the kingdom of God, to be born again, was to participate in God's future earthly kingdom now. And so Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. He means that where your treasure is currently stored is no longer in your possessions, but with Christ in heaven where he is. And this is the man's response. Disheartened. I mean, gutted. One translation that we read this morning at Gospel Community was he had a long face, or his face fell. His face fell. He was gutted. He was disheartened at this saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And he walks away. Like he just, he walks away. God incarnate is right in front of him, shrouded in mystery. He's called to follow him, and he walks away. But the craziest part is this, that Jesus lets him. That Jesus lets him. I mean, if this were me, if this were us, I would, I would try to convince him. I would chase after him. Be like, hey, can you reconsider? Like, just can we talk about maybe, like, are there any apologetics like issues that you're dealing with, or like, are there any objections that you may have to the faith that we can talk about? Let's talk about your doubt. Let's deconstruct your doubt. Like, let's go through this. He does none of that. He lets him walk away. And this is what this shows me. This is what this shows us, that even when we would manipulate or coerce or chase or give him a pros and cons list, remind him of the dangers of hell, to try to dissuade him from walking away from Jesus. That's what we would do. Jesus invites him and lets him walk away. See, the call to follow Jesus is always, always, and never anything more than invitational. He invites you into the kingdom life. He doesn't coerce you. He doesn't manipulate you. He invites you into this kingdom. He doesn't bully you into the kingdom. And so often we may use those bully tactics. But our witness should be of winsome speech, of spirit-fueled, sanctified lives that invite people into the journey of following Jesus. We should never use bully tactics. We should never coerce people into the kingdom of God. That is impossible, and that is not the way of Jesus. And so as we read, he went away sad because he had so much stuff. We see that the reality is that while he had many possessions, it's the possessions that had him. He was possessed by his stuff. He couldn't see himself divesting himself of riches. He just had too much. And here we see that even while he was able to keep the second table of the law, he fails to keep the very first commandment, to have no other gods before Yahweh. 
And it's clear here that this man would rather enjoy his riches now than give them up for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. But this is a strong call of discipleship to Jesus. Even while we invite people, it is a strong call. This is to give everything. And so what we do is that we resist. We resist the temptation to downplay the cost of following Jesus. We have to. We resist the temptation to downplaying the cost of following Jesus. You must be willing, listen, you must be willing to let it all go. Everything. Everything you hold dear and near. You must live and we must live with a radical indifference. A radical, holy indifference to the will of God. There's no hedging our bets here. This is all in. To say yes to Jesus is to renounce all other allegiances in our lives. It is to have all other things in your life subsumed, transformed, transposed into the key of Christ. Everything is centered on Jesus. Paul says so as much when he writes in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. This is a radical release of control over our lives to follow the King. A radical release of control over our own lives. And this goes squarely against the grain of everything each person in this room has been taught. That we are the makers of our destiny. That we create our lives. That you create your identity. You are no longer your own. This is radical. To say that you, your body does not belong to you. Paul says so as much in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, you, and we can do some gymnastics here around what he means. You are not your own. I don't care who you are. Right? I don't care how old you are, how young you are, what your sexual orientation may be. This doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, the possessions of this young man had such a strong hold on his heart, on his imagination. He couldn't imagine letting them go. His possessions were his highest good. He simply couldn't give up his stuff for the sake of following Jesus. And I wonder, I wonder for us if it's the same thing. And, and I'm not sure if collectively, as a culture, it's, if Jesus were to encounter us today, he'd probably live in Bankstown, right? Maybe TNs, white-fitted cap, like, you know, so he can contextualize himself in, into the culture. And he would come up to us, and he would say, so you call me good, great. You've done this, that, and the third. Now, th- what, would he, what would he follow that with? What would he ask us to give up? In our culture, and I, I wonder if it's this, if it's freedom, self-orientated freedom. If you would say something like this, you lack one thing, 
you have to let me tell you what to do. You no longer are the captain of your soul. Your choices are dictated by me. Your relationships, your body, your sexuality, your money, your time, your career, hopes and dreams, all of that comes under my lordship. And I wonder if we would look at him and we say, but I, I got a master's degree in this. Like, I've spent so much time, I've got so many hopes, and I've got so many dreams to be this kind of person. I wonder if we would be the ones with a long face, walking away sad, not being able to give up our freedom. I wonder if in our culture, it's freedom and not so much possession. And we say, you know what, God? I'll give you Sundays. I'll even serve on two Sunday teams. Man, I'll even do kids. That's how, you know, that's how much I'm going to give you. I'll give you the leftover of what I have. In return, I can enter into any kind of relationship I want or feel or need. I'll use my own body, my own sexuality in the way that I see fit. I'll worship you on Sunday, but on Monday, I'm worshiping career advancement. And what if God is calling you to a radical abandonment to his will, a radical pursuit of what he wants for you? Self-orientated freedom is the highest possible good in our culture. It is our golden calf inside and outside of the church. How dare anyone, creator of the universe or not, tell me what I can do with my personal choices and my personal freedom. And so I've seen many people walk away from Jesus because the call to a radical abandonment to his will was too steep a price to pay. Disheartened, sorrowful, unrepentant, lost, wayward, we walk away. The cost is too great. But what we need to realize is that the cost to not following Jesus is greater still. See, Jesus goes on to explain this fact and it's, that it's literally impossible, he says, it's impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are bugging, right? Like they are flipping out. Like twice they say that they are amazed and exceedingly amazed at what Jesus is saying. You see, for them, in their worldview, if you were wealthy, that was a sign that God had his favor on you, okay? And so if God has his favor on you, surely, surely these are the people who can get and who can see the kingdom of God. Not because they were rich, but because there was a correlation between riches and God's favor and God's goodness on someone. If you were wealthy, that was a sign that you were the recipient of God's grace and favor. So it follows then that you would see the kingdom of God and the disciples are startled. And Jesus says something like this, so crazy that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle like, this seems so ridiculous, right, that we have tried to figure out ways to make sense of it. So much so that there's, there, are interpre there's, there are people who say there must have been this gate in Jerusalem that was really low. And, you know, camels would have to bend their knees and kind of get through. But that would make it possible for a rich man to get to the kingdom of God with a little bit of humility. That's not the point. There is no gate called Eye of Needle in the Middle East anywhere. I could hardly get a thread through the eye of a needle. 
trying to get a camel. Like he's saying, this is ridiculously impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Verse 27. And Jesus looked at them. You know, I love, I love the way the, the writers of the Gospels and Scripture put those little things. In. He looked at them. Man, we know he's looking at them. He's talking about them. But this is so important. He, he gaze is important. He looks at them. He looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And of course, Peter. Of course, Peter's going to be the first one to be like, hold up. Like, he, he rebuked God, remember? Like, he told God he couldn't go to the cross. And so Peter pipes up, and he goes, see, look, man, we have left everything and followed you. And I think what comes up next is, is, is a bit of encouragement for Peter, but also Jesus th- is going to throw him a bit of shade. Because Peter is the first one to be called. He's the first disciple to be called, and he's always the one to pipe up. And Jesus does two things as he closes the story. First, he, he actually encourages Peter and his disciples. He reminds him, he reminds them that while the cost of following Jesus is steep, the cost for not following him is steeper still. And he reminds them of something. And remember is our last anchor sort of word that anchors our text today. Remember the dividends. Remember what you get. Don't just focus on the cost. But remember what you get as you enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 29. Truly I say to you. This is just an emphatic way of saying it. Truly. Amen. Yes. Yes. Let me tell you something that is absolutely true. That there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, for the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, right? Like, that's odd. Like, what? Like, this would, God, Jesus, you were on a roll, right? Like, so you're saying, I give up, I give up this, I get a hundredfold with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. He tells us, remember, we may leave our house But in the family of God, we have hundreds. That we may leave our families, but in the family of God, we have hundreds. That we may leave our lands, but in the family of God, we have hundreds. That there is a radical solidarity in the experience of the people of God as brothers and sisters. To the point that even when we keep our names on the deeds of our homes, of our cars, that we share our possessions in such a way that we can say we all have a hundred homes, that we all have a hundred cars, that we all have a hundred mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And this is the only way to not allow possessions to possess us as we give them away. This is the only way to not allow our freedom to get to our heads as we give it away. How do we keep money from becoming into mammon? We give it away. How do we keep the good things that God has entrusted to us as good things and not as God things? We hold them with open hands in a posture of holy 
indifference, knowing that in this life, in this life, when we view our lives through the lens of the good news of Jesus, we receive a hundredfold. And I don't want to get it twisted. I, I don't want you to walk out here saying, man, Arnaldo, off the rails preaching prosperity, that you're going to get a beamer because you've sowed a seed into this ministry. That's not what I am saying. And Jesus reminds us a little bit of that because he says, hey, hey, with this, it's almost like the fine print. Right? Like, I signed up for this, and there's a fine print. Oh, also, persecution. You'll receive that too, thrown in for good measure. Jesus reminds us that even while we occupy, occupy this present evil age, even as the ages overlap, we will also experience persecution. But when the new age comes, eternal life. And so first he encourages Peter and the disciples. He reminds them that while the cost of following Jesus is steep, the cost of what we would lose for not following him is steeper still. Remember the dividends. But second, he does this. I also think he's throwing Peter a bit of shade. He reminds Peter, he says, yes, you may have left everything. Sure, great, thank you. I mean, you're going to get it a hundredfold anyway. But just because you were first, it doesn't make you any better than the very last person who will enter the threshold of the kingdom. The first will be last, and the last will be First, he reminds the very first disciple who was called. And so Jesus, even, even as he was getting up to go on and head out, right? Like he had argued with the Pharisees, hung out with some kids. He invited this man into a new life. He didn't force him. He didn't, he didn't well, he loved him first. He, he stopped long enough to see him. He stopped long enough to see this young ruler, and he loved him. And then he invited him into a new life, even as much as he desires that none should perish, but all have everlasting life. He resists the idea that we need to alleviate the cost of discipleship to make it easy for someone to follow him. Jesus, even as it would be just for him to simply command us with no promises of blessing, he reminds us that there is great reward both in this life and in the one to come. And this is the kicker, that this is possible, not through our riches, not through our freedom, but in Christ, the impossible becomes possible. The reality is that Jesus is not asking this man to give up anything that Jesus hadn't given up. That Jesus gave up his riches, that Jesus, in fact, gave up his own freedom. Even as he says, no one puts me to death unless I allow them to. He abandoned, he, he left his seat in heaven to come to us. He gave up his freedoms. He gave up his possessions. He didn't, what, what Philippians teaches us, he didn't, he didn't grasp after his possessions. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus and that it has infiltrated this present evil age. And through the life, the death, the resurrection, and enthronement of him, of the king, of Jesus, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Jesus left his riches. He laid down his divine prerogatives. He divested himself of his home. He didn't grasp equality with God, but emptied himself, making himself a slave, even dying an ignominious death on a cross. He left his culture of heaven, entered into the culture of earth. Why? So that he would do what we were unable to do. 
so that he would do what Adam and Eve were unable to do, what Israel was unable to do, to, to bring the kingdom near. And it's this kingdom, even now, that I'm inviting you into. Maybe, maybe for the first time ever. So I'll say go. Sell your possessions. Sell your freedom. Sell whatever it is has your heart in its grip, saying that if I don't have this, I don't have anything. Sell the dreams that will ultimately disappoint you anyway. Put down the pretenses. Sell the fake false, the, the fake versions of yourself. Sell whatever it is that is keeping you from coming full-heartedly to Jesus. Give it away. Come and follow Jesus. Let me, let me pray for us as the band comes up. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness today. We thank you that you saw what he really needed. That you loved him. You invited him. You resisted the temptation to lower the bar of discipleship. And you remind us that even while the cost of following you is steep, the cost to not follow you is steeper still. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray now for this room, for anyone sitting under the voice of this word. Lord, would you do a work in them? Would whatever it is that may be holding them back from wholeheartedly following you, Jesus, may you strip that away. May you give us the grace to lay that down and pick up our cross knowing that even as we give things up, Lord, you will give it to us 100-fold and eternal life in the life, in the age to come. Whatever it is that may be keeping people from this, Lord, we pray against the enemy, his effects and works, knowing that he is blinding the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the beauty and the grace of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray you that you would do a work. Do a work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.